Good morning. David, I don't understand why people like David. I don't think I've ever understood this, actually. Although, when I was when I was young, I did like the story of David and Goliath. And I think this was because it sort of is like a fairy tale, right? There's a good guy and there's a bad guy. And the person with less power beats the person with the most power. And there's a giant and there's a big win. And there's a happily ever after. It's kind of a Cinderella story, but with a boy. This lowly but beautiful shepherd is chosen for greatness and leaves his old life behind happily ever after. Except what is happily ever after for David looks like this. Usurping the ruling monarch, accumulating wealth and power, deals with foreign powers or conquests by military force of foreign lands, political maneuvering, uh, arrangements of assassinations, marriages of political convenience, amassing a harem of at least six wives and at least that many children. And that's all before the text that Darren read this morning, in which we learned that David was 30 years old. I mean, I guess I have to give it to him. He accomplished a lot by the time he was 30. Uh, I had only one spouse and barely one baby by the time I was 30. I didn't have any conquests or kingdoms. David might even be the most accomplished person in the Old Testament. Uh, He's certainly the most named person in the Old Testament. He's mentioned over a thousand times. And in the little bit of the story that we got this morning, David is on the verge of another happily ever after. He's being crowned, essentially. He is becoming king over the two kingdoms of Israel and Judah, and he's bringing the tribes together with his kingship. He's making his home in Jerusalem, and he's bringing the Ark of God to Jerusalem making a home for it and for God, because the ark is essentially the seat of God, God's throne. And there's over-the-top celebrating with music and dancing. And what I see a lot in the writing about this text, and also sort of in my experience of the church, is that David is celebrated for his passion, his great passion for God, and his completely unashamed dancing in praise, and his longing for the ark to have an honored place, and for his wise leadership. The rest of the Bible might see him this way. The rest of the church might see him this way, but I can't. I can't. I just can't do it. To me, in these past weeks, uh, and kind of for the rest of my life, uh, David has been totally irredeemable. This time last year, you may remember, and I'm not sure how it happens that I only preach, you know, once every four or five Sundays, and yet I get the David text every time. This time last year, I was preaching on David and his, let's say, encounter with Bathsheba. It was really difficult for me then, and it still is now. Last year, I preached on the similarities that I saw between David's license and entitlement 
in taking Bathsheba's body and the body of many other bodies of many other women. And the way I saw Brett Kavanaugh, who had just been confirmed as justice on the Supreme Court, the similarities I saw between the way they acted with women. And David, King David, seems at least as relevant to me as I live with this text as Brett Kavanaugh or Louis C.K. and the other comedians and actors who lay low for a while and then they come back after a year or so. Maybe they've made a, one of those uh, if I offended you kind of apologies. And then we all go on as if nothing has happened. It makes me furious. It makes me furious that the lectionary is coming back to King David as if nothing has happened. Furious, like seriously furious. There were a lot of swears in the early editions of this sermon. I cut them all out. It makes me really mad that the Bible treats David like he is just the awesomest and just glosses over the way he mowed people down, including and especially women. I learned a revelatory word this past week that I think applies here and in much of life. That word is empathy. Are you all familiar with the word empathy? Empathy was coined by Cornell professor uh, Kate Mann, and this is what it means. The inappropriate and disproportionate sympathy powerful men often enjoy in cases of sexual assault intimate partner violence, homicide, and other misogynistic behavior. I'm going to read it again. The inappropriate and disproportionate sympathy powerful men often enjoy in cases of sexual assault, intimate partner violence, homicide, and other misogynistic behavior. I learned this term, empathy, from the podcast Battle Tactics for Your Sexist Workplace, which I recommend. And they, in turn, were playing... Uh, an episode of Scene on the Radio podcast from their series, Men. An example of empathy might be when a collegiate athlete is exposed for having assaulted one or more women on his college campus and receives responses like, he's just a kid, he didn't know any better. Or, she should drop the charges, his future might be ruined. To say nothing of her future or her present. Or, consider a man... And I should always say, I should say almost always a white man, because imagine these scenarios if the man was black or another person of color. A man makes an inappropriate joke or a hurtful comment toward a woman in his office or in his church. And the talk afterwards at the board meeting or at the fellowship time sounds like, well, I'm sure he didn't mean anything by it. Everyone's just too sensitive. Or, it would be just a shame if he weren't able to use his gifts because of something like that. David is getting all the empathy from the Bible, from the church, even from God. This makes me so mad at God. I'm being quite distracted, I'm sure you are too. Just one second. Excuse me. This makes me so mad at God. (laughs) God who plays favorites, treats people like pawns, lets David get away with, and even encourages, it seems, violent and self-indulgent behavior. And I just 
I just can't with God. And there are two things that make me feel a little bit better. The first is a 15-year-old article that I found in Word and World. It's a Lutheran scholarly journal, and there's an article in it by... there There are a couple articles that I found helpful in that journal. One by Marty Stussy. Stussy talks about the books of Samuel as propaganda. Davidic propaganda. The Bible is full of a lot of genres of literature. You know, history and poetry and prophecy, love songs even. And I thought about all of those. I had not considered propaganda as one of the genres included in the Bible. This was a revelation to me. I had understood that the Bible comes from a variety of perspectives, but this idea that there is a particular spin that the, political, that the biblical authors were putting on the story of David kind of made me feel better about David. Stephen McKenzie, in that same issue of Word and World, talks about the spin doctors of the Bible who are working that story of David into something like that very fairy tale that we want to hear. Now, in today's culture, we're familiar with the way people do spin in politics. We're living it every day during a political campaign. I watched a little bit of the Democratic debates this past week, and I see the the politicians themselves trying to spin themselves in the best light, and then I see them afterwards talking with reporters and their advocates, just like constant spin, and God knows, Donald Trump, like people are spinning what he has to say, like spinning like crazy what he has to say every time he says something. These writers in Samuel are telling these stories to David's advantage. And I learned, too, that even in a story like David and Goliath, it's probably spin, a lowly but beautiful shepherd who rose to defeat a military giant. I learned that Shepherd Boy more than likely came from a family of extensive land holdings and wealth. And sure, he may have spent some time with the sheep, but the image of shepherd was so important as an image and metaphor for leadership. And I hear echoes of today's leaders trumpeting their humble, humble beginnings, know how rich they were to start with. Then they go back to how their parents worked their way up from the bottom. The one I particularly thought of was, was Mitt Romney, who we all know has like millions and millions, but he's talking about his, you know, his father in Michigan. And like all the politicians talking about their humble beginnings because that's what the people want to hear. So it helps me to know that this is a spin story. David isn't perfect. And I started to feel relief when I realized I didn't have to think he was perfect. I'm not even so sure why I got so tied up in feeling like I had to think he was perfect, but maybe just culture is telling me, the Bible keeps telling me, David is amazing. The other thing that helped me with this story is remembering Sarah Augustine's anger a couple weeks ago when she was preaching about these Old Testament texts of conquest. And it's okay to be angry. What do we do with David and all the other mess that's in the Bible, the violence and the conquest and the xenophobia? And I remembered Sarah's reminder to read the text through the eyes of Jesus. 
This is nothing less than the Anabaptist readers have done since the beginning of Anabaptism, reading the text with Jesus as the center of our faith. And David is not Jesus. I really, really do not like David. And what a relief I felt this week when I realized I don't have to like him. I don't have to like David. David is not the one that I am modeling my life after. David is not the one that I am following or listening to. David is not Jesus. Thanks be to God. I was very, very wound up as I was reading this text this week and feeling so angry. And as I released some of that anger, not all of it, you can see I still get pretty worked up, I began to allow myself to look at him and at this propagandist text, both with a critical eye and with empathy, to see David as fully human, and thus as a child of God. These days, it is hard to cut through the propaganda and the spin. But some of our politicians are good leaders. Some of them aren't. But they are still human, and thus children of God. And what do we do with wonderful work by problematic people? The example I thought of in our Mennonite community is John Howard Yoder. I haven't returned to Yoder's work in recent years since uh, he was exposed, again, I have to say, for victimizing many women in his community when he was teaching. And I'm not certain that I could return to his work again without, I mean, I couldn't, without my eyes being clouded with that knowledge. But his theology was meaningful to me and shaped my theology of peacemaking and of communion when I was learning what those things meant. And that, that's still a part of my theology today. So here's what I can appreciate about David, since he is not Jesus. Maybe even John Howard Yoder, who is not Jesus. I don't have to like him or respect him. I will never read Psalm 52, Create in me a clean heart, O God, without knowing what David was asking to be cleansed of. But the words are still beautiful. And I believe that David was self-serving. He was cruel. But he also gave those kingdoms, the people of God, something to rally around. And he did serve God. He served God too. He celebrated God. He danced with abandon. David and all the people of Israel celebrated to their heart's content with songs, harps, lyres, tambourines, rattles, and cymbals. That is leadership we can follow. At least the singing part. Thanks be to God.